0: In this episode, I discuss plateau iris with Dr. Shivani Kamat, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Glaucoma Fellowship Director at UT Southwestern. She also founded and co-chairs Women in Glaucoma. Today's discussion includes the difference between plateau iris configuration and syndrome, how to distinguish it from other glaucomas, and treatment options. I'm Rob Schertzer, a Vancouver, BC... Based glaucoma subspecialized ophthalmologist, and we're talking about glaucoma. Okay, Savani Kamat, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Yeah, great to great to see you. Uh, we're actually recording this over Zoom, so apologies for any uh, glitches with the sound quality. Not quite the same as in person, but. Uh, Next best thing. So we thought uh, today we were going to talk about plateau iris.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I thought that might be a fun topic to discuss because it's, I feel like it's, it's kind of overlooked and missed a lot of times. It's easy to miss on exam. And, um, you know, a lot of times we just kind of do a PI and then don't necessarily think too much about anything afterwards and so I thought it would be just good to highlight things that can come up if the PI you know is successful like it's patent but the narrow angle still persists Um, so anyway I thought it was would be a valuable thing to quickly discuss.
0: Yeah absolutely so I guess we could start with the clinical presentation like when we suspect plateau virus.
1: Yeah so um Typically, I mean, it can happen a lot of times where the person just shows up for a routine exam, you know, and they have no symptoms. They've never been told they have narrow angles, nothing, and you, you diagnose them that day. Um, so that definitely is really common. And another very common scenario is someone who's had a, a patent PI and they have persistent narrow angle. Um, so basically, um you know, just to kind of go over a little bit demographic, it's, it's commonly young people. Um, Average age is usually around like 40 to 50. So they're usually pretty young. A lot of times they're female. Um, A lot of times they're hyperopes. Uh, They're just, they're not necessarily as hyperopic as the traditional angle closure counterpart. Um, But they're often hyperopes. And they tend to have a family history of angle closure, glaucoma, or some, you know, narrow angle, like some sort of um, incidents of that. Um, you know, we're all really familiar, I think with, um, especially glaucoma specialists, you know, plateau iris configuration versus syndrome. Um, and so basically that's, uh, differentiated by the presence of the PI. So plateau iris configuration is a pre laser condition. So it's somebody who comes in and diagnose the narrow angle, um, but it's before the PI. And then plateau iris syndrome is the person who has had a PI, um, but has a persistent narrow angle. Um, it's do, important. So, to, yeah. yeah so ahead. how
0: are you just dis- distinguish the two? Because sometimes, of course, you do an iridotomy and it's because the angle was closed for so long that it's just all sinecule closure. So, yeah. So what's a, what's our modern way now of distinguishing between
1: yeah, plateau so, iris? Yeah. People with plateau iris um, tend to have pupillary block um, of, of some like some component of pupillary block. So right. um, a lot of times you do see some improvement, but you know uh, there's a couple different ways to be able to diagnose it. And um, you know we 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 touched on this just a couple minutes ago, but um, you know UBM is really helpful, but not everybody has access to a UBM. But UBM will often show um, an Anteriorly positioned ciliary body, um, and so or anterior rotated, I should say, ciliary body. So, and that's like a hallmark of platyrus So, that can be really helpful. Um, but what every most people have is a gonial lens. So, um, you know, when you gonio, you'll often still see a narrow angle that it's not. It's not true necessarily true PAS that's present. Um, although a lot of times later on they can develop PAS, and you know we know the difference between something that's cl- narrow, but not closed with PAS is, you know, when you indent, you can see structures that are showing up versus PAS, even when you indent, you can't. Um, but one of the classic findings with uh, with is something called a double hump sign. So um, on indentation gonioscopy, you'll notice two humps. So the peripheral hump is the ciliary body and that's basically the iris, like draping over the ciliary body, and then the more proximal hump is the iris draping over the lens. Right. So that's another uh, sign on exam um, that we'll see on gonioscopy. That's pretty um, characteristic of plateau.
0: And I guess we could also throw in there uh, with with plateau iris versus the more common garden variety. Uh, Relative pupil block is the central anterior chamber depth. Also, absolutely,
1: right? yeah. So the the uh, in plateau iris, the AC centrally actually is often still pretty deep. Um, peripherally, you might notice um, a little bit of narrowing. Um, some people actually can still look decently normal um, with uh, peripheral depth, but a lot of times you'll see a little narrowing. But the key, like you said, is centrally it's still deep.
0: Yeah. And I guess one of the key things with uh, all of glaucoma in terms of why we want to know what type of glaucoma somebody has is the treatment options.
1: So yes, guess- absolutely. So <clears throat> with treatment, um, you know, th- there's uh, different tiers. So if you just want to try medications initially, I mean, platyrus is typically treated um, the best with some kind of procedural option, but... You could try initially, if you're trying to buy some time or something, you could try like a low dose PILO. PILO can thin the iris a little bit uh, peripherally. And also it'll, as we know, pull the iris away from the angle. So it'll open it up a little bit. But, um, you know, like anecdotally, at least like in my experience, since a lot of these patients are young, like they're just so sensitive to the side effects of PILO. And so I haven't had a lot of success with being able to keep people on PILO long-term. Yeah, they would Um, Nobody likes pilo, yep. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, again, if you wanna buy time or something that could be, that's an option. Um, as we've discussed, definitely first intervention is a PI, just to eliminate pupillary block and kind of distinguish what we're dealing with. Um, right, and like if, you said, a
0: lot of times that that is enough to open the angle enough so that yeah. we can peek over that last hump of the iris, last iris roll see that the angle is actually open,
1: actually that. open. Yeah. And so there definitely are a subset of people, even if they have plateau, it's mild and you can do a PI and they're okay. And you just kind of watch it for a period of time. Um, and some people who, where it doesn't open up enough, um, there nowadays, I have to admit, I'm not sure how often this is done, but, um, a, a peripheral laser irritoplasty was a common next step. Um, you know, you just basically use an argon laser, low power, large size in the far peripheral iris. Um, and it just shrinks the iris away from the angle, opens it up. Um,
0: yeah, but you know, very, very important, like you said, to do low energy settings because yeah, it's amazing over time, those patients, even though you think you barely did anything to them, uh, at the time of the treatment, it starts to atrophy more and more. And you can exactly. see some patients with these gigantic blotches in their peripheral iris of depigmentation.
1: Absolutely, so just true.
0: enough laser to just see the iris sort of move a little bit.
1: Exactly, and um, that that's so true. In so in the past, you know, I um, when I was in a teaching institution, you know, when you're trying to teach a laser like this to a trainee, um, you you can you kind of pick up on those things really quickly. And like, you you know, so you'll see patients sometimes who have almost what's developed almost into looking like a full thickness burn or something. They almost have a little holes in the periphery, which is not really what you want. Um, so exactly. I think trying to be as low power as you can. Um, and like you said, just to see the iris sort of shrink away a little, like move a little. And that's a lot of times all you need. Um, but exactly like what you said, it has its own set of Risks, you know, iris atrophy, like you mentioned, um, you know, the more early risks that are associated with any laser, like IOP spikes, iritis, like early uh, transient iritis. Um, There are some reports even of, uh, I'm not sure if I remember I'm saying this correctly, but eretz syndrome, where people have just um, persistent dilation of their pupil, basically. Um, so these are all like things that, you know, that basically can, can really interfere with their quality of life. Yeah. Um, and there are, there's, I've also noticed that there's sort of a question of how effective this procedure is anyway, long-term. So it, a lot of people, I think nowadays don't necessarily even do that step. Um, but it's valuable to know that it's an option. If you don't have, if you can't move on to like a more um, definitive, like surgical approach for whatever yeah. reason.
0: Yeah. So in terms of getting right at directly at that anatomy, there are other approaches now. And I guess that laser treatment dates back to perhaps when we didn't have the UBM. So we didn't really know it was the ciliary body processes pushing the iris forward.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think it, it now we have so much technology and so many surgical options that aren't as necessarily as invasive as what we had, you know, 20 years ago or something. So um, I think there's a lot more that we can do that might be a better option than uh, iridoplasty. But um, you know, traditionally, if somebody had to move forward with a surgical option for eye pressure control, you know, I think they would probably look more at a trabeculectomy or a tube shunt. But nowadays, we have a lot of things at our fingertips that we can do before we have to do something that invasive that can be really effective. Um, you know, studies the Eagle study, like so many studies have shown us that cataract surgery is really effective in people with narrow angle. So what a lot of people do, um, is they'll do a phaco, and you could try an ECP at the same time, that'll kind of shrink the processes away. Um, if somebody needs more IOP control, you could try something like a Goniotomy at the same time. Um, there's like reports of people doing that kind of stuff. Um, and, and just to
0: throw it in, the ECP is endocyclophotocoagulation. Yes.
1: sorry about that. <laughs> I'm so hip on that.
0: all the TLAs.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so there there are a lot of um, options nowadays that where we don't you know we don't have to necessarily go through the traditional um, kind of bigger surgeries. Of course, those are available for us if needed down the road. Um, something that is kind of interesting to bring up is so my colleague and mentor who you also know, Simon Roy from University of Michigan, um, she did a lot of work has done a lot of work on this and she and I actually have a paper kind of in the um, still like that we're still kind of putting together about patients who have plateau iris um, and who ha- can have um, they, you know, they tend to have sort of a unique anatomy so they have in turn, Unique complications. Um, and we found uh, through UBM actually that their interplicata distance, so the distance between the ciliary processes on either side of the eye, is a little shorter, like a little smaller. Um, Interesting. And so, what sometimes happens, like what she found, especially a lot, was that she was seeing these patients who had plateau and uncomplicated phaco um, from, say, from another provider, like outside provider or whatever and they were having this like persistent cme persistent inflammation it was almost looking like a basically like a ug type picture um and she went in and she found out using like the ecp probe that the um single piece haptics which are square and a little larger were actually rubbing on the ciliary processes on either side so she found that um if she did ECP at the time to shrink the processes, or if she did a lens exchange and put in a three piece lens where the haptics are smaller and like rounder yeah. that patients actually did a lot better and didn't necessarily experience this, like in the bag. Um, so, I mean, I had a set of patients where I noticed similar um, th- these similar characteristics, which is why we're kind of writing something new up, but you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that it, it's like every plateau patient um, you have to do, you have to put in like a three piece lens in the bag or something like that. But it's just something to think about that it's a possible complication in patients with this kind of anatomy. Um, Anyway, so um, it's not like, I don't think it's like a commonly known uh, risk. So I just wanted to mention it because I I think it's so interesting.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Love to see the Um, paper when it comes out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'll let you know. And she already has multiple things, um, published about it. So, um, she's definitely, uh, been studying it for some time. Um, yeah. So I think that the treatment options for plateau have, uh, there's so many and they've exploded, you know, in the recent years and I, people tend to really do well. I think the only thing is a lot of times they're younger. So if you're thinking about doing something like a cataract surgery, you just have to, you know, really educate them on presbyopia and, you know, think about lens options, things like that. And that, so that their age adds a little bit of a unique um, like characteristic to deciding the treatment option. But otherwise I think people tend to do well if it's recognized early and treated promptly. Yeah,
0: great. Did I think we covered everything uh, about plateau iris we could think of for today?
1: I think so. I mean, yeah. I think um, you know, good going having it in mind when you're evaluating narrow angle. Um that's yeah, really- always key.
0: i mean you you don't uh yeah. see what you're not looking for.
1: Exactly. That's the hard that's one of the hardest parts. So just kind of keeping it in the back of your mind, I think is important. Trying just your best to have um to you know develop and have just careful, thoughtful gonioscopy skills. If you have access to a UBM, that's helpful. Um, And then kind of going through this treatment regimen, whether it's medical, laser, or surgical, I think is um, really all you need to make sure that they do well.
0: Great. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: Yay. That's our show for today. Talking About glaucoma is a podcast of indeterminate frequency and duration, recently averaging four episodes per year. I'm still hoping to get this out monthly in the future. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podcast Addict, and many other podcast services. Please rate the podcast on your podcast player of choice, subscribe to it, and tell your friends about it so that it can reach more listeners and encourage me to continue to produce new episodes. Follow me at West Coast Glaucoma on Instagram and Talking About Glaucoma on Facebook drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org, that's podcast at I-G-U-Y dot O-R-G, with your show ideas, if you would like to be on a future episode, or questions you would like to have answered on future episodes. Keep informed to prevent needless loss of vision from glaucoma. See you next time on Talking About Glaucoma.